Follow with me as I read all of Psalm 94. O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth, render recompense to the proud. How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour forth words, they speak arrogantly. All who do wickedness vaunt themselves. They crush your people, O Lord, they afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger, and they murder the orphan. And they have said, the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob pay heed. Pay heed, you senseless among the peoples, and when will you understand, O stupid ones? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who chastens the nations, will he not rebuke? Even he who teaches man knowledge. The Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are a mere breath. Blessed is the man whom you chasten, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, that you may grant him relief from the days of adversity until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not abandon his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. For judgment will again be righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who will stand up for me against evildoers? Who will take a stand for me against those who do wickedness? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would have soon dwelt in the abode of silence. If I should say, my foot is slipped, your loving kindness, O Lord, will hold me up. When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations delight my soul. Can a throne of destruction be allied with you? One which devises mischief by decree? They band themselves together against the life of the righteous and they condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has been my stronghold and my God is the rock of my refuge. He has brought back their wickedness upon them, and he will destroy them in their evil. The Lord our God will destroy them. God reigns as the king over all of the nations. There is no square inch in all of creation that Jesus Christ does not own. I want to tell you today that the gospel is advancing, and I want to tell you today that the gospel can never be stopped. I want to tell you that the gospel has already been determined it is victorious, and it will triumph. And even when the darkness is thick, Even when evil is seen and even when the oppression is felt, even amidst all of the afflictions and hardships, hear it again, our God reigns. And he rules and he sits unmoved in heaven. He's unhurried in heaven. He's unfrustrated in heaven. And our God sits as king over all. It was a few days ago, I was in Myanmar and sat over lunch with a man. He was about my age, married with five kids. And he was telling me about how his oldest son has an 18-year-old friend. If you read the updates, you know that the junta, which is the rebels in Myanmar that have overthrown the government, the junta is this rebel political coup Four days before I arrived, they made a nationwide statement that all 18 to 35-year-olds must join their coup. They must join the military force. So I'm having lunch, and this man tells me that his 18-year-old son has a friend. And the friend is hoping to go to the northern border of the country and escape on foot into another country for safety. He's not going to join this political coup and fight against his own townspeople. What do you do? 
When you're the father of your son, and the son's friend is telling you this, what kind of counsel do you give? When you're living in times like that, when the evil seems to triumph, and when the godlessness seems to go unchecked, and when they kill people for no reason. Where evil and blasphemy and depravity and iniquity is running amok, what do you do when you're living in times like that, whether it's around the world or even in our own country right here of America? Well, I think what we could do is we could pray earnestly. I think what we could also do is we could warn sinners and we could announce them of the power of God. And I also think that we as believers ought to assure one another of the mighty character of God. That there's nowhere to go for any stability but to the attributes of God. Or maybe I could summarize all of that. God gives us some divine counsels in his word for living in times like this. You must pray earnestly. You must warn urgently. And you must refocus theocentrically. That's what Psalm 94 teaches. Psalm 94 is in the middle of a section That is my favorite portion, hands down, in all the Word of God. It's called the Kingship Psalm. Psalms 93 to 100, they all deal with the kingship of God. Psalm 93, 1, the Lord reigns. Psalm 96, 10, the Lord reigns. Psalm 97, 1, the Lord reigns. And Psalm 99, 1, the Lord reigns. Reigns. He is king. He is the ruler. He is the one in charge of all of the earth. Our God reigns sovereignly. Our God reigns exclusively. Our God reigns globally. Our God reigns perfectly. We could say that our God reigns absolutely. Our God reigns righteously, our God reigns effectively, and our God reigns eternally. Let us worship and adore and stand in awe of our great King. And we sing it. We love these hymns. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. Praise my soul, the king of heaven, to his feet thy tribute bring. How worthy, how worthy the king in all of his beauty. We love these songs. We love these hymns that all remind us and they ascribe the kingship to our great God. But Psalm 94 is the psalm for me and you today. Psalm 94 is the psalm for the brethren around the world who are going through difficulties. And maybe you and I aren't living in a day where there are security guards who have thrown your political leaders in jail. And they've got guns at their side and they're ready to kill anyone and everyone. Maybe that's not the time that we're living in right now. But no doubt you and I have afflictions. And no doubt persecutions and hardship is going to come. And let's remember, for all who desire to live godly, there will be persecution. There will be. And so we want to look to this psalm. And God is going to teach me and you how to live godly when the darkness and evil is pressing in on you. I want to give you three ways. Three ways that we need to live. Three ways that we need to live. This is relevant in Myanmar. It's relevant in Philippines. It's relevant in India. And it's relevant right here. In St. Louis, Missouri, three ways that we need to live. And I mentioned it earlier. You must pray earnestly. You warn urgently. And you refocus 
theocentrically. I'll define that here in a little bit. Number one, let's begin. Here's the first lesson that God gives us on how to live when the darkness and evil is pressing in. Number one, you pray earnestly. And that's where the psalm begins. Look at it in verse one. Oh, Lord God of vengeance. God of vengeance, shine forth, verse 2, rise up, O judge of the earth. He is talking to God. This is a prayer to God. I was at the hotel with Kim in Myanmar. He was telling me in a quiet voice about the situation in Myanmar. And he was telling me of the recent years of the political rebels that have literally taken over their government. It would be like a political coup going to the White House and literally imprisoning every person in authority. I said, where's your president? Where's the parliament members? He said, they're all still in jail. Every single one of them. The rebels have taken over. And Kim is telling me this, and and Kim is telling me that in recent years, they have written tunes and music to the imprecatory psalms, and they have actually put music videos together for those in their native tongue. And Kim said, and yet believers have come up to me, and they say, Kim, why would you sing words like that? God of vengeance. Strike your enemies. Judge them. Dr. Kim, how could we sing that? Kim told me over breakfast, he said, because God tells us to, because he put it there in the Bible. He put it there in the Bible. And the situation in Psalm 94, whoever the author was and whatever the situation was that gave rise to the writing of this hymn, it was incredibly dark and tough because the enemies are proud. Verse 2 tells us, render recompense to the proud. We see in verse 3 that they are exulting. We see in verse 5 that they are crushing God's people. At the end of verse 5, they are afflicted. God's people. We look in verse 6 that they are killing widows and they're killing strangers and they're murdering orphans and then they are arrogantly mocking God in verse 7 saying, ha, the Lord doesn't see it. Whatever the situation was that gave rise to this, it was a time when evil was pressing in. Evil and violence And wickedness. What do you do in difficult times like this? The psalm begins with this lesson for us. We must first pray earnestly. Pray earnestly. Give your petitions to God. Or maybe to use the language that Peter teaches us. Cast all your burdens upon the Lord because he cares for you. Because he cares for you. I find it interesting that the the prayer begins in verse 1 by calling God, God of vengeance. Literally in the Hebrew, it's plural for an emphatic tone. He is the God of all vengeances. The idea of vengeance is God's just hatred of evil. That God will repay all evil. You are the God of vengeance. Rise up, O Lord, and take action. He tells God in verse 2, I want you to rise up. Now, you and I read that idea of rise up and we think, well, that's nice. But it's the same idea that goes back to Numbers chapter 10. When they're wandering in the wilderness and they're about to go to battle and Moses is praying to God, rise up, O Lord, and be our warrior king, defend us and destroy our enemies. And the psalmist says, yeah, in the same way, I want you to rise up and defend your people. In these opening verses, 
In the tough situation, the psalmist tells God what's going on. He pours out his heart to God. He's unburdening his heart in the mighty lap of God. That's what prayer is. Prayer is the child of God crawling into the lap of God, the Father, and unburdening our heart before the ear of our loving Father. Rise up. Shine forth. Repay them. Do you see again what they do in verses 3 to 5? Do you see how prideful and arrogant they are? They are speaking arrogantly. They're vaunting themselves. Verse 5, they're crushing God's people. They're killing the innocent and the most defenseless in verse 6. And then they are mocking in verse 7. Last Sunday, I preached in a church, and I was escorted to the front pew, all these wooden pews in a large sanctuary that held about 200 people. It was jam-packed. And I was escorted to the front pew, and I sat down, and I shook hands with the pastor that I'd never met before, but I'm filling his pulpit that day. And we shook hands, and we talked briefly. He was a middle-aged man walking with a cane. And when we sat down in the pew, he leaned over to me with tear-filled eyes. And he said, Pastor Jeff, you need to pray for us. You need to pray for us because I am waiting for the day when our church is finished and the Junta military is outside waiting to line up all of our young people to take the 18 to 35-year-olds and take them by force. What do you do in a situation? I've never been in a situation like that. I've never had to pastor a church in a situation like that. I mean, what do you do when that is happening? When the violence and the arrogance and the wickedness and the blasphemy of such God-hating rebels is going on, what do we do? We pray earnestly. This is hard. It's tough. And yet there's a lingering question in our minds. Why does God bring suffering like this into our lives? I didn't say allow. I said bring. Why does God bring suffering into our lives? A lot of reasons. He does it to discipline those whom he loves. Proverbs 3. He does it to test and prove the genuineness of our faith. Genesis 22 and James 1. God brings suffering because we would know that the school of suffering is what teaches us obedience like it did Jesus in Hebrews 5 verse 8. God brings afflictions into our life to reveal the greater glory of God like the man born blind in John 9. God lovingly brings suffering into our lives to produce self-denial and humility like Paul's thorn in the flesh, 2 Corinthians 12. God brings suffering into our lives to unite the saints together in love and support for one another. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. To teach us the ministry of comforting others, like 2 Corinthians 1 says. And really, God brings suffering also to prepare us for glory, like Romans 8 teaches Afflictions and all the sufferings and the evil that can press in and it can be so thick and so difficult. These are given by God to us to make us more holy and to make us more like Jesus. You see, they they remind us that we are weak and that we cannot rely on ourselves and we have to pray and lean on Jesus. I mean, what do you say to the pastor? I don't know what to say. I don't have the perfect counsel for him, but we prayed. We prayed together. What do you do? The psalm teaches in verses 1 to 7, you must pray earnestly. 
If you're taking notes, jot down the second lesson for us in a psalm. When evil is pressing in and you're living in tough, dangerous, evil days, what must we do? Number two, you must warn urgently. Warn urgently. Now, this is really fascinating to me because the opening seven verses are talking to God. But now, beginning in verse 8, look at it in your Bible, he's not talking to God. He's now talking to the wicked themselves. Verse 8, pay heed, you senseless ones, and when will you understand, you stupid ones? Actually, Jesus does the same thing. I was reading it today in my quiet time. Luke 12, verse 5. I will warn you who to fear. Fear the one who, after he is killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. This is a warning to the wicked. Back in our psalm in verse 8, the psalmist says, Pay heed, you senseless ones. That word is fascinating in verse 8, the first word for senseless ones. It's a word that means one who hates knowledge and he laughs at his sin. You better understand those of you who are mocking God and laughing at your sin. That's what he's saying. And then he says in verse 8, when will you understand, oh stupid ones? That, that's not an intellectual statement. It is a statement about one who hates knowledge and he's stubborn and he's self-willed and he's mocking God. It's a warning. It's like the psalmist is saying, it is stupid to fight with God. You're not going to win. So in verses 8 to 11, it's like the psalmist is talking to the wicked and he says, you need to wake up. You're arguing with God and resisting God and not submitting to God is foolish. It'd be like a little candle, a little candle that is trying to melt the sun and all of its heat. That's just not going to happen. It could be like a little ant that is trying to overthrow 10,000 worlds and all that it contains. That's never going to happen. How foolish for the wicked man to think that he could resist God. To think that he could outsmart God. Look at it. Verse 9. Look at what he says to the wicked. Look at it here. He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who forms the eye, does he not see? He who chastens the nations, will he not rebuke? Even he who teaches man knowledge? And all those rhetorical questions. Well, yeah, 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 of course God does. Verse 11, the Lord knows the thoughts of man that they are a mere breath. Fascinating that the Apostle Paul chooses verse 11 in our psalm to quote in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In 1 Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul says, The wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. We don't need worldly wisdom. We don't need to intermingle worldly wisdom with godly wisdom. We don't need to integrate worldly wisdom with biblical wisdom. We don't need that because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.20, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he can become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. Verse 20, because the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. It's Foolish for you to fight against God. Foolish. No sin ever goes unchecked. There is no evil that ever goes unnoticed. There is no violence that ever goes unpaid. There is no curse that ever goes untallied. It's like the psalmist is saying to the wicked, you need to wake up. God sees it. God knows it. God hears it. God is aware. 
Speaking of God knowing. In Myanmar, I asked him if he would take me to the Shwedagon Pagoda. It's one of the largest Buddhist temples in Myanmar. And after you leave your shoes in the car, they don't allow any shoes on the premises. You enter through this walkway, this narrow passageway. And the first thing that we saw right when we entered this large, large plaza of people was I saw a handful of people with cups washing their Buddha God. They were washing their God. I saw men and women washing their gods, and and then we walked a little bit more, and then we saw people bowing down, literally bowing with their face to the ground before Buddha. There were Buddhist priests and monks chanting to their gods. On one occasion, Kim and I were walking around this large circular premises, And a handful of Buddhist monks were loudly chanting something in Burmese. I didn't know what it was. And I said, Kim, what are they saying? Kim said they are blessing everyone who's walking by with happiness and wealth and prosperity. I saw lots and lots of gold, a lot of gold. In fact, the diamond on top of the largest pagoda in the middle of this massive complex This little diamond gem is estimated to be worth $3 billion. That's just one gem. Actually, in recent years, the Junta military stole that so they could buy their weapons for their rioting. We know, Kim said, in the Hinduism, in the Buddhist religion, that that, that men try to live good so they can be reincarnated in the next life. They want to live good. They want to love people. They want to do good. They, they, they finally, the ultimate goal is to be God. A God. That's the goal. No. No, no, that's not the goal. Our God, verse 9, plants the ear. Our God has formed the eye, verse 10. Our God chastens the nations. It is our God who teaches man knowledge. Listen to Psalm 115 as it puts it in this way. Psalm 115, verse 4. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, and they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. And I saw a lot of that at this pagoda. And then Psalm 115, verse 8 says, Those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. There is only one God. And our God is not an idol. He is not an idol of silver and gold. So it's like the psalmist is saying, Oh, foolish unbelievers. Oh, foolish evildoers. You need to wake up. God sees what you do. He made your eyes. He made your ear. He made your mind. He knows everything. Turn to him now. What a good word for all of us. If you haven't bowed in complete surrender to Jesus Christ, you're worshiping an idol. If you haven't bowed the knee to Jesus alone, you're worshiping a false God. Bow the knee to this God. Come to him by faith alone. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9 says that you must turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. If you have never done that, do so this very day. The psalm, back to Psalm 94 in your Bible. In the the dark times that we live, 
what do we need to know? How, how do we need to pray? How do we need to, how do we live? What is God teaching us? We must pray earnestly. We must warn urgently. And now number three, jot this down. You and I must refocus theocentrically. What does that mean? Well, theo is the Greek word for God. We need to refocus on God being the center of all things. We need to refocus. We need to reorient our hearts and our minds on God. It is our God who disciplines. It is our God who teaches. It is our God who is faithful. It is our God who supports us. It is our God who comforts us. It is our God that you can find refuge in him. And you and I need this today. You and I need this this year. Our brethren around the world need this. We need this. What what, what do we learn about God from this psalm? What do we learn about God? A little theology proper lesson for us. I think it's one of God's great gifts to us to turn our attention off of this world and on to him. Refocusing on him. Let me just tell you some of the attributes of God in our psalm. Our God is the God of vengeance. He is the judge. He is the creator. He is sovereign. He is omniscient, meaning he knows everything. He is faithful. Our God is our helper and our supporter. Indeed, the psalm teaches that our God is comforter. He is the sovereign one. He is our mighty stronghold. And he is the destroyer. We have to refocus off of the things of this world because the things of this world is like shifting sand. It's like trying to to pick up a bunch of sand at the beach and it just sort of seeps through your fingers. It's just going to fall through. But God is a solid rock. Notice, beginning in verse 12 in our psalm, do you see it here? Look at the shift. Look at the change. Look at verse 12. How blessed is the man whom you chasten. Ha, that's kind of weird. The word in verse 12 for blessed means happy. How happy is the man that you discipline, O Lord, whom you teach out of your law. What a good God. What a good God that he disciplines and he grows And he stretches us from his law. The spirit of God is alive and active and he works by and with his word. God directs us. He teaches us. He reproves us. He grows us, verse 12, out of his Law, verse 13, notice the so that. Here's the purpose. Why, verse 13? So that God will give relief. Oh man, we are living in times where people say, just give me relief. Give me the pill. Give me the therapy. Give me the yoga. Give me the group. Give me the whatever. No, God says, here's my law. Here's the word. The word of God grants relief. Because verse 14 tells us God will never abandon his people. He will never forsake his inheritance. Indeed, judgment of God will be righteous and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who will stand up for me against the evildoers? Is there anyone who's going to stand up for me? The psalmist is saying. What a faithful God. In verse 17 Now the psalmist continues, he fixates, he dwells, he's riveted to the character of God. It's like you've got a board and and you're going to nail another piece of wood to that board and you put all these nails and all these hammer blows, one after another after another. That's what the psalmist does with the attributes of God here. One after another. Look, verse 17. If the Lord had not been my help, My soul would have soon died. 
meaning I would have gone to the abode of the silent. If I should say my foot has slipped, it is your covenant love, O Lord, that holds me up. God, you're my helper. Your love is there. You will hold me up. Verse 19, when all my anxious thoughts multiply within me, you know what our culture would say? Go to the psychologist or the psychiatrist and get the pill. There's one divine cure for anxiety. And it's right here in verse 19. This is a go-to verse for counseling. When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, it is your consolations that delight my soul. It is your comforts that delight my soul. Notice the plural. All of the comforts that are found in God, that's what gives deliverance to my soul. When I'm worried, when I'm anxious, when I'm fearful, when I'm uncertain, when I I don't know what tomorrow's going to bring... You go to the comforts of God. You go to the character of God. This is the solution to all anxiety. It is the character of God. It's the character of God. And then in verse 20, verse 20, can a throne of destruction be allied with you? I mean, God, look at what's going on here. Look at all the evil that's going around me, the psalmist is saying. Look look at their killing and their pride and their violence and and their injustice. I mean, God, are you going to be are you going to be allied together with such evildoers? Verse 21, they band themselves together against the life of the righteous. They condemn the innocent to death. Oh, but verse 22, where do you go in times like that? The Lord is my stronghold. And my God is the rock of my refuge. So the psalmist had violent men opposing him. There are brethren around the world who have violent men at their doorstep. You and I have situations that we don't know what the outcome is going to be. We don't know what tomorrow is going to hold. We don't know the rest of this week, this month, this year. For our lives, for our family, for our church, for our nation, we don't know. So where do you go? The answer is verse 22. The Lord is my stronghold. But you got to get the Hebrew. The Hebrew is this. God is my high impenetrable tower. It's kind of like you picture in your mind a city wall. And then you've got a tower that is looking over the city wall. No one can scale that tower. That's God. He is this mighty stronghold. He is a high fortress. He is lofty and impenetrable. He is high and secure. The Lord is my stronghold. End of verse 22. And my God is the rock of my refuge. And that word refuge in the Hebrew means a place of covering. When you're stuck in a rainstorm outside and you have no umbrella, where do you go? You go for covering. You go to a, you go to a house, you go to a shelter, you go to a building, you hide under a tree, you, you find some place for shelter. That's the idea of God being my refuge in the storms of life, in the difficulties of life, in all the evils of this world. God is our refuge. Jesus is your only, only refuge. Boys and girls, hear that. Everything this world could ever promise you. Men and women, hear this. All that this world could ever promise you. Only Jesus can be the ultimate refuge. Only Jesus is our secure stronghold. Is he your 
refuge? Is he your refuge? And then the psalm ends where he began. Look at the verse 23, the very end. It's like he comes full circle back to where he began. And he has brought back their wickedness upon them, and he will destroy them in their evil. The Lord our God will destroy them. He is the God of vengeance. So, when I was in Myanmar... I noticed when driving around with Kim, we didn't go too far because there's different checkpoints and we didn't want to go beyond that. But when we were driving around the city, I noticed a few things. I noticed that there appeared to be a seriousness about the people in that country. I mean, look, life is precious. Death is near. Times are volatile. Tomorrow is uncertain. I mean, you just don't know what tomorrow holds. You don't know what the the rebel governing authorities are going to do. You don't know if they're going to come to your house. You don't know if they're going to come to your work. You don't know if they're going to come to your church. You don't know if they're going to force you to get out of your car at a checkpoint. You don't know what is going to happen. I mean, there's a sobriety there. Look, they're not messing around. There's no gaming. People are not living lazy. People aren't wasting their life away. They're not glued to their phones. I saw no one glued to their phones. Because there's violence. And time is short. I mean, man, it, 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 it took me and just grabbed a hold of me saying, life is precious and days are uncertain. But what about the church? What, what about God's people? I asked Kim, our missionary, I said, Kim, what, 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 what are God's people doing in days like this? And what are the 18 to 35-year-olds doing now? I mean, they're living in times where they've got to do something. They've got to take action. They, they have to make a decision. He said, here's what Christians are doing. They're working hard on the job. They're attending their church every time the doors are open. They're attending the prayer meeting. The youth are attending the Sunday gatherings. The room that I taught the two-day seminar was filled with young people, men and women, hungry and eager to learn and grow and study and follow God. Some of them, I learned, travel day and night and many hours and hours through difficult checkpoints just to get there to hear the teaching of the Word of God. They sang loud, they praised the Lord loud, they thanked the Lord genuinely, they worshipped sincerely, they turned to God. Where else are they going to go? They can't turn to themselves, they can't turn to their money, all the banks are shut down. They can't go to their company, most of the jobs and businesses have moved and left the country or shut down. You can't turn to your political authorities, they're all in jail. You can call 911, but they're not going to do anything for you. Where do you go? Refocus theocentrically on God. What a a psalm. What, What a psalm. Absolutely packed. Packed with with truth. I learned a few lessons on this trip. I learned a few lessons. Let me just give you a couple of them. God is at work around the globe. He is at work. He is at work. He is at work in India and Myanmar and Philippines. And I've also learned that the gospel of Christ is advancing unstoppably. It is advancing. And yet another thing that I learned in India and in Myanmar, and in Philippines as well, is that Christians are suffering, comma, with great joy. They're suffering with joy. I learned, fourth, 
that it is the Holy Spirit alone who is effectually, meaning he always accomplishes the goal. He is effectually drawing sinners to Christ. And I learned that amidst much uncertainty, we must live soberly for Christ. But, you know, the psalm begins with God of vengeance, doesn't it? God of vengeance. We can't just leave it at that. Because if you and I are really going to see the vengeance of God and understand the vengeance of God, we see it most horrifically and most graphically and most evidently at the cross. In Mark chapter 15... We get to look at Jesus hanging bloody and beaten and scourged and mocked and wounded, suspended from a tree. In Mark 15, 33, when the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the land until the ninth hour. That was a physical darkness. But that was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, which meant God's judgment has come. That's why in verse 34, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders heard it and they began saying, behold, he is calling for Elijah. That was a mocking statement. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine. They put it on a reed and they gave it up to his lips, saying, let's see if Elijah's going to come and take him down. And then verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry, which we know from John 19.30. That's Tetelestai. It is finished. And then still in control, Jesus breathed his last. In verse 38, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the Roman centurion who was standing right there in front of him, he saw the way that Jesus breathed his last, and he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. I mean, do we see at Calvary's cross the full vengeance of God meeting the perfect compassion of God? The divine arrows of wrath piercing the soul of Jesus on the cross so that divine rivers of love would embrace your soul forever. Christian, we can can ponder and be humbled at such love. The grace of Christ to stand in our place and bear the vengeance of God for us. But children or teenagers or visitors or men and women, young or old, maybe you're here today and you're a lost sinner outside of Christ. God's vengeance is after you. You, you better run this moment to Christ. Waste no time. Flee for refuge in Christ. You don't, you don't stand a chance to resist the vengeance of God. There is no hope outside of Christ, but there is refuge in Christ. You know when a If a thief were to break into your house, you would waste no time. You would take action. When your bank account is hacked, you waste no time to take action. When a life-saving surgery is needed, you waste no time. Oh, so it is. Don't waste any time regarding your eternal soul. Run to Christ by faith. But Christian as we come to the Lord's Supper here in a sec. Very quickly, let me close by pursuing your heart and wooing you to Christ for a minute. 
Ponder this. Ponder this. The vengeance of God is like sharp, piercing, and accurate arrows that pierce through Jesus instead of you. The vengeance of God is like the storm of God's furious wrath that was poured out in full and burst upon Christ's head so that you would not bear one drop of it. The vengeance of God is like the blazing furnace of fire, hot and ready and flaming with infinite heat to receive sinners. And yet Jesus stepped in and he quenched the fiery furnace in full in your place. The vengeance of God is like the lonely plague of abandonment, and it was experienced in full by Jesus on the cross when he was relationally forsaken by his Father. The vengeance of God is like a fast and powerful runner chasing after you and about to seize you. And yet Jesus steps in to take the full beating and he takes all the pain so that you can go free. The vengeance of God is like the divine rage against all sin. And Jesus swallowed it. He absorbed it. He extinguished it. He propitiated all of it in your place. In your place. What a river of love. One of the books I read on my trip gave an application to believers with these great words. Come to the river of Christ's love and bathe there every day. Bathe there every day. Come and swim in the banks of his forgiveness. What a cross of love. Come and gaze at your bleeding Savior hanging on the cross for you who took all of your sin in your place. What a rock and a refuge of secure love we have. You must come and hide in him. Come and rest your weary soul in him. In the dark and the violent and the dangerous and the oppressive times all around us, what do we do and where do we go? This Psalm 94 is a great go-to psalm for all of us. Let us remember and let us rejoice in Christ as we take the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray.